Welcome to episode 10 of the Fit for Golf podcast. In this episode, I am joined by world-renowned nutrition and health expert, Danny Lennon. Danny is the founder of Sigma Nutrition, a company aimed at providing the highest quality, evidence-based information on nutrition and health. Danny has a master's degree in nutritional sciences from University College Cork and a Bachelor of Science degree in Biology and Physics Education. As he gained popularity online for his wonderful work, Danny quickly became a highly esteemed nutrition expert. He is invited to give presentations all over the world on a wide range of nutrition concepts. Not just an academic, Danny also has a huge amount of experience applying his knowledge in the real world. He has worked closely with a number of high-level athletes, and also competed in powerlifting and holds a blue belt in jiu-jitsu. Danny is also the host of Sigma Nutrition Radio, one of the world's top-ranked nutrition podcasts with a whopping 360 episodes. Yes, this is a long intro, but I feel it's necessary to make it clear how high a level nutrition expert you are about to listen to. Last thing before we start the podcast episode. I want to make sure you are all aware of the Fit for Golf app. It is the only golf fitness resource you will ever need and is currently being used by six PGA Tour players, two European Tour players, two Champions Tour players, and thousands of amateurs all over the world. Check it out on www.fitforgolf.blog and use the code PREMIUM50 to get a one-month trial for just $6. You will not find it on the App Store. You must go to the website. Now to Danny Lennon. Danny Lennon, uh, currently in Limerick. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm really looking forward to the conversation. So Danny is the first guest I have had on who also has a podcast that I've listened to a lot. Uh, Very experienced, puts out really good stuff. Have been a fan of Danny and Sigma for a long time. Really good educational resources. And so far, the only character flaw I can find with Danny is that he's a lifelong Arsenal fan, which I know is a very, Mm. very tough vocation. Yes, it's uh, something that I've been long suffering for since the the golden years when uh, 2004 we went the season unbeaten. I thought, oh, this will never end. Uh, I was just used to winning at that point, but it's, it's been a long uh, time since. It's it's co- it's coming back around, I'm sure. So, Danny, an expert in nutrition, health, and performance, fits in really nicely with the listeners I have to this show. The, the kind of motto is anything that will improve golf, health, or performance. Um, we've had a lot of golf instructors. We have had some decent people with training backgrounds on. But nutrition is definitely something that we've been lacking and something that I am definitely not as well educated on compared to training material. So I'm looking forward to getting some of your thoughts on some more basic concepts for people who are, who are kind of at more of a beginner level. But then also some more advanced things, uh, including supplementation for people who have been training a little bit longer and are at a more advanced level. The first thing that I would like to kick off with is I had a quick look at some statistics. In the US, Ireland and the UK, 60 to 70 percent of the population, depending on where you look, are either overweight or obese. With all the information that we have today, 
what's going wrong in society for this to be the case? In short, it's not an information or knowledge problem most of the time when you look at the barriers to good health or good nutrition in that uh, this idea that we just need to educate people about good food as being the answer just doesn't have any real basis in that if you were to poll most people in the population, and in- including those that would fall into a, an overweight or obese category by body weight or people that have a certain uh, health issue due to, say, poor lifestyle factors, most people know that they should probably be eating a decent amount of fruits and vegetables in their diet and probably shouldn't be eating a large majority of their calories from sugar-sweetened beverages or from uh, fast food and, and so on. Um, which are primarily still things that a lot of people end up doing. So I don't think it's a knowledge problem. What what we have right now is a food and lifestyle environment that makes it very easy, um, in fact, probably easier for one to gain weight over the life course than to not. So in other words, we have a food environment where calorie dense, very hyper palatable foods. So ones that are very easy to eat, that are very rewarding to the brain, very dense in calories that we can continue eating after our hunger is gone. Those foods are very easy to get hold of. So they're very convenient. They're very cheap and cost effective. And now with advances in technology, they're literally at the end of a click of the button. You can get an Uber Eats to deliver you literally any food you like in moments without even moving. Um, in a similar fashion, our exercise habits are, and activity levels are a similar similar way in that you can get up in the morning, uh, drive to work, sit down for the day, come home, sit on the couch after a long day of work being tired, have some food and then go to bed and virtually have zero activity built into that. And that can be considered a relatively normal uh, day for, for people unless there's a conscious effort to go and do some activity. And so it, it's, it's like that. It's like a, a slippery slope almost that that is what we're kind of set up to do unless there's conscious, conscious effort not to. So I think a lot of the kind of environmental factors, um, that surround us drive a lot of food and activity behaviors that go beyond knowledge. So it, it's not a knowledge disconnect. It's more. Uh, habits and behaviors that we fall into just through repetition that are driven by these other things. And and of course, then there's a myriad of other factors, whether that's marketing, the role of the food industry, people that are sleep restricted are going to make poor food choices, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of things relating to modern life. But I think it's those lifestyles and the food and behavior we're surrounded by are a large part of it, at least. So unless we really have our guard up and we're proactive against what the default would be based on how things are at the moment, it's likely that we'll kind of be in a little bit of trouble in terms of maintaining optimal health, optimal weight, yeah, that I, kind I, of thing. Yeah, I think on average, of, of course, there's also a, a genetic predisposition of who is more susceptible to that when it comes to either weight gain or deleterious effects on cardiometabolic risk, for example. But in general, when we talk at a population-wide level, um, that, yeah, certainly being aware of, of what things we can put in place that may make that uh, less likely is probably necessary um, because it's, it's very easy to otherwise. And so... Uh, I completely go against this whole narrative over that it's people who are lazy or not bothered or they're just making choices to to do this. Like most of the time, that is not the case. Um, it's just it's this 
slow kind of or this gradual slope that puts us down in that direction because it's it's easier uh, to do that um and in a very unconscious manner that without realizing it we're going to be making poor decisions i think so i, I don't think it's a, a laziness issue I, and i think um even if we're taking a bigger level it, it may not even be a personal responsibility issue a lot of the time um but the more we can become aware of that these are factors that influence us can we put anything consciously in place to counteract them we'll probably be better off as individuals okay yeah that's excellent so i think people who are in you know the very overweight or obese category it's it's pretty straightforward usually for those people i think what are some of the immediate changes they can make and also why they need to make them something that often surprises me are how lackadaisical people are to being a little bit overweight they sort of have the attitude i'm not too bad i don't eat too much rubbish i'm relatively active when i think of this category i'm thinking of kind of like friends of mine, friends of mine's parents, people who, you know, are in reasonably good environments in terms of socioeconomic factors. It's just that almost they don't seem quite that bothered. And one of the things that I wanted to ask about is, can you dig a little bit into the health benefits for these people um, in terms of improving their body composition? What are the health benefits there for them? Like why should people who are not particularly very unhealthy but definitely could, you know, lose 10, 15, 20 pounds of, of fat mass and what that would actually do for their for their health markers and risk. Mm. The, the first thing I'd say is that we can talk in generalities about that, which is, I think is very important. We also at the same time probably need to acknowledge that there's some individual differences in that there can indeed be people who would fit in a overweight or even obese category sometimes who can be metabolically healthy um and again that that's not the majority but there are some people like that in a similar fashion that there can people that would be lean and also be metabolically unhealthy so it's worth acknowledging that there's some nuance there um and the kind of related to that is if someone is in a overweight category uh, or beyond but has really good healthy lifestyle behaviors they're probably going to be at lower risk than maybe someone who has uh, bad lifestyle behaviors let's say from a health perspective but just happens to be a bit leaner <clears throat> and we see evidence of this in uh, that if you look at average activity levels people who are very active but maybe in the overweight category actually on average are probably healthier than people who do no activity whatsoever but may be lean um so there is some like variation within that however you're right that there is a correlation between being overweight and particularly as that goes into uh, obese category one obese category two obese category three etc um that the higher that adiposity climbs you're going to be correlated with poor health there's a distinction between the type of adiposity or, or the amount where the fat mass is stored that's probably worth mentioning in that if there's this what's called visceral or central adiposity uh, which is where the fat is in around the internal organs that is worse from a health perspective than just the fat under the skin let's say but on average as someone's level of body fat goes up 
they're probably going to have an increased amount of visceral adiposity as well, or central obesity, it's also called, and that correlates with with poor health. So you typically see then people who lose, um, who let's say are in an overweight or obese category, and they lose uh, 10, 15, 20 pounds, like you mentioned, you see improvements in a lot of health markers. So uh, a common one to see in, in research is uh, people that have that amount of weight to lose, and they lose about, say, 10% of their body weight, you see dramatic reductions in their fasting blood sugar, their fasting insulin levels, reductions in their LDL cholesterol, and so on. So they're having knock-on impacts on markers that we know correlate with chronic disease risks like cardiovascular disease and, and diabetes. And so for many people, yes, even though they, like you said, they may go about their day and, and feel fine, uh, being at a very high level of of body fat may be contributing at least some of the risk to their health. And if they were able to lose some of that body fat, get down there and maintain that, that would probably also impart a health benefit to that person in general uh, within the context of those caveats that I gave. Yeah, no, that's, that's excellent. Really good. Is there um, a rough... I know a lot of people listening won't be too, say, in tune with what their body fat levels are or what a certain body fat level looks like. Is there um, a guide you could give for where you think most of the health benefits, you kind of have them under control with in terms of what you can control by getting to a certain level, like people getting from, like obviously if somebody is 25% or 30% body fat, that's likely to be, you know, an issue if someone gets mm. to, 18 it's better is there a certain cutoff where you think at this stage you're probably in the category where health-wise you're you're about as as optimized as you can be and anything else is you know not really going to make a, a big difference yeah there, there's a lot of variation within this and I, I think also you have much of the research done at a population wide level would look at something like bmi which may not be the best measure for an individual maybe to look at um there's different levels of body fat that correlate with different risk depending on what disease we're talking about or then that difference between groups and individuals so you see uh for example a different cardiometabolic risk between different ethnicities and, and races at different body fat levels I, I think practically for most people rather than trying to think about what specific body fat percentage should i be it's not really that helpful number one because it's it's hard to know what that is, first of all. Yeah. And number two, just measuring that in, in any accurate or ongoing basis may not be useful. And I think there's a point beyond it that for what, even if we had a number like that, there's there's probably a range that people fall within and it's probably different from each person. So there's these concepts of like, what is an ideal body weight range for, for an individual that may vary depending on a host of factors, including their genetics. And so to me, it's what is the, what is a healthy body weight that that person can attain and sustain for a long period of time, ideally for their life ongoing that they can do without constantly have to under eat and constantly have to restrict all the time to do um but it also correlates with good health and what point that gets to is going to be different from different people so people start dieting down and some one person may be able to find that they when they get to around say 15 percent body fat in around that number that's they can do that and they're still pretty healthy and, and feeling good. And 
But if they start to go a bit below that and they continue to diet, it becomes almost impossible to maintain that it's a constant battle against it. Where someone else, different genetic profile, maybe 12% that what happens for someone else, it might be 18. So rather than fixate on a specific uh, number, what I would say is if someone knows that they are in, um, let's say an overweight or uh, obese category by BMI and they decide they would like to lose some some body fat they can start that process focus on the healthful behaviors as opposed to the percentage body fat continue to make those behaviors as part of their life and then get to a point where they're seeing an improved health but also then at a, an intake that they can see themselves sustaining into the future um and i think that's probably a better way to uh envision it and then also if they know that okay at this point, I'm doing all these things that are beneficial for my health. I'm being physically active. I'm getting good sleep. My overall diet looks good. I'm, I have good mood. I'm, I'm feeling good. I can still enjoy social occasions. All these things together, then they're probably that's a, probably a better uh, characterization as opposed to specific body fat, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's that's a really good answer. If um, if body, like you pointed out kind of some of the, the issues with trying to use just body fat for that, would um, something like a yearly, you know, blood work panel done by a doctor or something like that be good, you know, objective feedback? I'm just thinking of people who, you know, they probably want to have some sort of, of tracking they can do as mm. opposed to, you know, how do I feel? How do I look? I think I'm healthy. Would, yeah. would something like blood work being done annually or twice annually be be something to look into? It can be if, if that's done with the presumption they're going to work alongside their, their doctor and have them interpret it as opposed to tracking certain measures themselves and making the oh, yeah, interpretation. That's, that's what I mean. Yeah. 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 Um, so I think that's going to be useful in that. Yeah. If someone starts to see that their blood glucose is ticking up over time and now their doctor saying you're starting to get into borderline pre-diabetes range here, then they, there's the incentive to, okay, I need to, do something here to manage this. Similarly, if they notice that their LDL cholesterol is through the roof, then there's going to need to be some intervention there. So I definitely think that can help on maybe a shorter ongoing basis. People can use probably a combination of visuals and maybe if they want to use body weight, depending on the person. Some people don't like using body weight. It can be quite stressful or anxiety producing for some people to constantly be taking body weight measures. So in that case, they can use other metrics like just looking at healthful behaviors or even just a visual representation. Um, but then if not, people can just keep a track of their average body weight over time. Don't fixate over any one measurement on any given day. It, it your weight will fluctuate up and down every day anyway. But if you're taking measures regularly, you can see on average over time, if it's staying roughly the same, if you're starting to see a trend upwards, if you see that, hey, over the past month, I'm five kilos or let's say 10 or 11 pounds heavier than what i normally am most of the year then you know that something Check has happened something. to change yeah. in, your, in your lifestyle um, and that you've gained uh, some weight because of that without maybe even realizing and then you can keep that in check so something like tracking uh body weight in combination with maybe just a, a visual representation can be useful for many people but will be contraindicated in others yeah even even waist circumference is something that i've recommended yes. a lot just because it's so simple for people to do and you know if you have a 
a five or three inch difference in waist circumference over the course of, you know, six months or a year or two years is probably a reasonably good gauge that there's, there's good or bad changes happening. Yes. And, and that's actually a good point in that it ties back to our, our earlier, uh, mention around that visceral adiposity or that central, um, obesity being more problematic than just actually having body fat distributed elsewhere. And therefore compared to total weight, which doesn't really tell us all that much, something like a waist circumference, if that is, uh, way beyond the norm, that can be an indicator that there's this extra storage of, of fat in that yeah. central abdomen area. So yeah, something like that can be a useful health, uh, proxy for people. Yeah. For sure. It's just, so, just so easy to measure too. So something maybe useful for the listeners is if they're comfortable using a scale, tracking it weekly or a couple of times weekly, and also maybe tracking your waist circumference weekly and just not becoming obsessed with them, but just tracking the changes over time. And if there's a shift in the right direction, if you've fat to lose, probably you're on a, a good track. And if it's going the wrong way, you probably know something needs to change basically. But yeah. I'm always trying to get people into the into the mindset of at least having some data and knowing as opposed to waiting three or five years and being like, oh crap, like I've gained 20 pounds or, or something right. like that, you know? Yes. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. So a lot of the people listening to this are probably at a level that is slightly more, say, I would say advanced or healthier than what we were just discussing there. They already have good habits. They're proactive in their approach to health. A lot of them are, are even say following a, a pretty structured training program. Like they, they have the kind of uh, pillars in place amongst this category of person. What are some common areas you see where nutrition needs to be tweaked to improve body composition and health i know it's mm. there's a lot of generalities in this but if you think of say i think the average western diet in sort of ireland america the uk is reasonably similar where are certain areas that you think healthy people who are doing a lot of good things often make small changes that help i know you're you're very well experienced in in basically providing nutrition plans and and things like this for athletes so mm. if you've some experience there it would be it would be interesting yeah for sure so i think particularly when we're talking about body composition or even people that have some sort of focus with their nutrition related to sport um they can have generally healthy behaviors but may get some added benefit from better understanding the overall energy requirements for their activity in their sport making sure their diet reflects that and then also maybe looking at protein intake overall um, and even going more advanced than that looking at how they distribute their protein across the day so with relation to overall energy intake someone on on one side of the spectrum could be eating what we consider generally healthy foods but maybe consi cons just consuming too many calories for their overall intake and therefore over time this can lead to potential gain of of body fat in this kind of incremental manner that you've mentioned earlier that kind of sneaks up on people after a while and so being aware of how much energy someone is consuming um might be worth considering if they're the type of person who notices that there's some unwanted weight gain occurring or they've been maybe trying to lose some body fat and haven't been able to despite eating an overall healthy diet and wondering well what's up with that it's probably just down to the overall energy intake is too dense in the diet so they can maybe track that for a few days track their intake see what the calorie 
intake of their diet is compared to what maybe they presumed it is or start noticing things like, Oh, I was having this snack that I thought was just a small snack of some nuts, but I was eating a hundred grams of nuts and that was 600 calories. And I didn't realize. And so just modifying some of the portion size. Um, the second thing then relates to, again, making sure there's adequate protein, which is probably the macronutrient of most focus for athletes, given that it's going to be most important for muscle recovery and repair uh, post-training. It's also going to support the retention of lean body mass, which is going to be very important as well. And then from the ability to control our energy intake, protein has a very high satiety value. So it keeps that kind of us feeling fuller for for longer. And so when you look at the typical epidemiology related to the the general population you tend to see people do pretty well for getting sufficient amount of protein in at their meal at dinner um okay amounts sometimes at lunch but breakfast times tends to be pretty poor in protein similarly with snacks and so for an athlete there's a benefit to having not only a higher protein intake in total but having that distributed across three plus meals per day so three four maybe you can make a case for five but at least three to four high protein servings distributed across the day would lead to the let's say the greatest anabolic uh, potential of that diet in other words it's having this impact on this process called muscle protein synthesis which relates to muscle repair and growth and so if we know that typically breakfast time and snack times are points where it's easier for us to maybe consume even decent quality food, but maybe they tend to be lower in in protein, it might be worth putting a focus on, can I include some good quality protein sources at these particular meals? So if the athlete is used to getting up and maybe they'll have something healthy like a, a bowl of oatmeal, and maybe they'll throw some berries in there, that's still going to be a low protein breakfast. So they maybe could supplement that with a scoop of a protein powder, or maybe they could have a couple of eggs or have a breakfast that's an omelet or something like that, where they're including a a protein source. Um, In a similar fashion, if they're used to just snacking on fruit, maybe they can start including something like a uh, 0% fat yogurt or some Greek yogurt or something like that. That's going to give them a hit of protein uh, for relatively low calories throughout the day. Um, and then just make modifications that way. So I, I think looking at overall energy and overall protein intake, and then also distribution of protein are some areas where athletes specifically can make some, some uh, big gains relative to say that just the average person in the population may not need to put as much focus particularly on on the protein distribution thing what sort of um daily intakes of protein danny should we have people concentrating on if we think of that say like people listening to this they're not elite athletes but they are they are training in a reasonably similar way in Mm. not the same volumes but they're taking their training seriously they want to have sort of the best performance and body composition they can based on the time they're putting into it. You're probably looking at the the 25 to 75-year-old who's lifting weights three days a week, maybe doing a couple of cardio sessions, playing a couple of rounds of golf. There's there's three questions have come up. One of them is, is slightly uh, a tangent, but I'll get there in a second. But if you could give people, because this is a question that I'm always asked, how much protein should I be looking at consuming per day? is this level of protein safe? And then also, um, in terms of you mentioned, there should be kind of three to five protein servings per day. 
what counts as a good protein serving? Like what would tick the box for this is a good amount of protein to have in a snack or in a meal? Sure. So, so first to talk about it in, in terms of just some numbers, uh, of grams of protein, for the total intake for someone who's looking to maximally support, say, muscle repair, recovery and growth, it seems that around 1.6 grams of protein for every kilogram of your body weight, uh, will maximize that. Um, now you'll have to forgive me. I don't know off the top of my head what that will be in pounds. So apologies for all the uh, American listeners. Yeah. There could be some conversion there. Um, Probably but, about 0. 0.75 or 0. 0.8, something like that, roughly, or 0. Right. 0.7, yeah. Yeah, some somewhere in around, uh, th- that sounds about right, yeah, about 0. 0.7 um, grams of protein for every kilogram of your body weight. So that's a daily figure uh, to aim for. That would probably be supportive of that now with the caveat that for some people if they're starting out on a already very low protein diet and they're not used to consuming high protein meals then really the goal initially is just to add more protein in so don't worry about this high target immediately if you're only currently having 0.3 grams per pound of body weight then you just want to nudge that up more and more and more in a way that you can actually do and then worry about getting to those higher ranges but in an ideal world that 1.6 grams per kilo or let's say 0.7 grams per pound uh, for a daily intake um second is that intake safe uh, yes the the only people that need to um be wary of very high protein diets probably have already been counseled to do so because they're people with pre-existing kidney disease. And so they'll probably would have been told by their nephrologist or, or a specialist to be, to have a certain limit on their protein intake. So for certain kidney diseases, people may need to limit protein. And so they wouldn't want to be on a high protein diet, but they should talk with their nephrologist and dietitian uh, about that. But for everyone else, there is no problem. There's an overwhelming amount of evidence on this now that it doesn't cause any of these problems, it doesn't cause any kidney uh, disorder, it doesn't cause, it, cause any liver disorder, any of these types of uh, myths that have been around for a long period of time. So uh, these high-protein diets can be uh, perfectly safe. Um, another worry some people have is uh, potential impacts on gut health or, or the microbiome has been one recently, but that's typically high protein diets in the context of very low fo- fiber diets. So people that maybe consume a high meat diet, but don't eat any vegetables, let's say, um, and don't eat any good source of fiber. So high protein diets are completely safe uh, with the exception of pre-existing kidney disease. And then in terms of the distribution over three to five meals per day, um, the per meal dose is between 0.25 and 0.4 grams of protein for every kilogram of your body weight. So again, there'll have to be some uh, conversion for pounds. Um, but roughly for, let's say someone who's about uh, 75, 80 kilos, you're looking at somewhere in the range of like 30 grams of protein. Uh, each of those those servings um which from at your main meals is, is easy. pretty easy yeah. to do like if you're having particularly for athletes that eat an omnivorous diet like having a piece of uh chicken or steak or fish will blow past that immediately if you're having a protein supplement it, you, you can get past that pretty easily if you're having some let's say uh combination of uh yogurt and and nuts and something like that you can get close to that so um those are fairly readily able to do at main meals um 
And then for maybe athletes who are on a vegetarian or vegan diet, a bit more attention may need to be paid, particularly for vegan athletes who don't have the ability to consume, say, dairy or eggs, um, which would be convenient source of protein. Uh, they can still get adequate protein, uh, but it'll just take more of a concerted effort to focus in on the protein sources that they are getting to make sure they're getting enough. Uh, so that would be the kind of uh, range we're looking at across those meals. Um, and again, with any of those calculations, it doesn't have to be super specific. Let's say if someone works out for their body weight, that per meal dose is around 32 grams. Doesn't mean every time you have a, a meal, you have to have 32 grams yeah. of protein. Um, it's kind of in around that range three plus times per day is going to be fine. So if you have 28 grams at, at your breakfast and you have like 50 grams at your dinner and like they're in and around uh, uh, 30 or above, then it's probably going to be uh, sufficient to maximize that response. Um, no, that's, if that's what you're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Um, you actually brought up one of the things that I had a, a kind of side question on is eggs. Uh, when like I've, I think a lot of people have realized that breakfast time is often harder to get protein in because we generally don't eat meat or, or foods that are as high in protein. When eggs are recommended, the, the first question that I always get is what about cholesterol? What about heart health from, you know, basically long-term consumption of multiple eggs per day? Mm. There's so much conflicting stuff out there about a lot of it is, probably just things that people have heard before and it's not particularly research-based what is what is what do people need to be considering if they're having you know a two three four egg omelet or scrambled eggs or fried eggs you know mm. multiple times per week or even every day is there mm. risks there so with eggs the main concern typically used to be around the cholesterol content of the egg yolk um with the thought process that Consuming that is going to drive up cholesterol in the serum or in, in your blood. Um, and it seems that consuming dietary cholesterol doesn't really have any meaningful impact on blood cholesterol levels. Now, diet can definitely impact uh, blood cholesterol and LDL cholesterol. Uh, the nutrient of most uh, influence here is going to be saturated fat. So a diet very high in saturated fat will drive up LDL cholesterol uh, the most. Um, uh, however, where most of the association with dietary cholesterol came in is that most of the foods that are high in dietary cholesterol are also high in saturated fat. And when you have those, those types of foods, you're getting both high saturated fat and high cholesterol. And there's potential that there can even be an additive effect there to drive up cholesterol in the blood further. But dietary cholesterol per se isn't having a meaningful impact and so um now uh, at least uh in, in the in the uk and i believe it's probably similar in the us the guidelines relating to dietary cholesterol have been taken away essentially that the the limit that used to be there has been taken away because of, there's not this meaningful effect so if people are worried about cholesterol impact from the diet it's mainly saturated fat when that's very high in the diet is is a problem um, and reductions in ldl cholesterol for example can be achieved through a reduction in saturated fat probably to less than 10 percent of daily calories and a replacement of that with um unsaturated fat would have the largest effect so polyunsaturated fat would have the largest reduction um when you replace the 
saturated fat you take out with uh, polyunsaturated fat, you get a reduction in LDL cholesterol. Uh, you could also add in fiber or other type of carbohydrate and get some uh, degree of reduction if it's a fibrous carbohydrate. So, um, yeah, it, it's the saturated fat that's driving it, not the dietary cholesterol. So, from that perspective, eggs shouldn't really have any meaningful impact on blood cholesterol levels. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Uh, something you brought up there, I'd ask one question on before kind of getting back to the the outline of here. What would be an example of replacing saturated fats with polyunsaturated fats? Is there practical mm. ways that people can look at that that could be advantageous? Sure. So most of the sources of saturated fat come from animal-derived fats in, in the diet. So one that has a particularly... Um, strong influence on increasing LDL cholesterol would be butter as an example. So a very concentrated source of, of uh, saturated fat. Um, removing that as a source to so say when someone is, is cooking or, or making some um, condiment for, for uh, a meal, taking out butter and replacing that with something like extra virgin olive oil. You could have a substitution of the exact same amount of fat total and the same amount of calories therefore but you're just having a reduction in saturated fat and an, uh, a source that is higher in polyunsaturated fats um so you you could have uh, so although typically a, an easy rule of thumb for people is that if you have uh more of a focus on the dietary fat in in your diet being contributed by plant sources of fat as opposed okay. to animal sources so if you're eating meat for example go for leaner cuts of meat instead of fattier cuts and instead get your fat in the diet from things like nuts and seeds and avocados uh, olive oil etc um so that's a easy heuristic that i think generally works out most of the time yeah no that's that's brilliant thanks for that that's something that i would consider myself probably more you know researched and read than the average listener just based on my background but definitely stuff that i'm not up to speed on at all um we're going to move a little bit danny towards supplements um obviously a, a big topic i'm going to try and look at it from the point of view of more general health and then some for kind of more the advanced people who are looking for an improved response to training or maybe improved performance. So what are some of the deficiencies or common deficiencies that you see in the Western diet that are worthy of supplementation or considering supplementation for what they're missing out on? Yeah, it's it's very difficult to give broad supplement recommendations uh, across the board. Um, number one, because if you're thinking about from a nutrient deficiency perspective that can vary between people uh, but there are some general groups that we can maybe touch on um second you probably want to ideally get that from dietary sources as opposed to uh, look at wide scale supplementation but some cases it can still be useful um so i think for people that don't consume a lot of fatty fish regularly so things like salmon or mackerel etc then consuming an omega-3 fatty acid supplement can be uh, a good idea um really strong data around the benefits of epa and dha which are omega-3 fatty acids that have lots of benefit uh Probably it would be ideal to get that from fatty fish consumption. Um, but for people who just don't like consuming that or don't regularly consume the, those types of 
uh, fish with high omega-3 uh, levels, then a supplement is probably a good idea. Um, in a similar fashion for people who are vegetarian or vegan, they can get an omega-3 supplement. Um, either typically people have got it from things like flaxseed or a flaxseed supplement. However, it may be even better to get it from a source of um, algae is one way to get it now, an algae-derived omega-3 supplement, which are, which are quite easily available now for, for vegans, um, just because it's a more direct source of that DHA that I mentioned, as opposed to flaxseed requires a conversion to take place in the body. Um, but that would be one. I think... Probably a concern for the part of the world that I'm in, but probably not where you are, would be a vitamin D supplement in that we get our vitamin D primarily through uh, sunlight. So sun hits the skin and we get a synthesis of vitamin D. And there's not really much. There's a few dietary sources, but they're relatively low. So most of our vitamin D status is driven by uh, access to sunlight. So if someone is where you are in Southern California, that's virtually just not going to be a problem um, unless they're someone who, let's say, never goes outside. Maybe they only work at night, sleep during the day, yeah. don't go outside anywhere, um, or some people who just end up doing that anyway, then a vitamin D supplement can be very uh, important. Uh, and then particularly for more northern latitudes, so as you go further north um, or more of the extreme uh, latitudes the other way too, um, then for a lot of the year, even here, if I was outside for six months of the year here in Ireland, the angle of the sun wouldn't allow me to synthesize much vitamin D anyway. So for the winter months, um, people in more of these um, extreme latitudes, uh, a vitamin D supplement, I think, would be a pretty sta good staple for most people. Um, other than that, uh, there's only kind of specific groups where supplementation may be warranted. Uh, like, for example, if again vegans should be supplemented with vitamin b12 across the board um women who are pregnant supplement with folic acid uh, across the board um but beyond that it comes down specifically to what does that person's diet look like um and maybe what type of goals we're trying to optimize for um much of the data around multivitamins isn't actually that good um probably because most of the products are probably not that good. Some don't really use bioavailable source of the nutrients. They don't put very high levels of them in. Um, and, and so you don't really see much major change uh, a lot of the time. Um, so it's probably better to pick out kind of what nutrients may this person uh, require um, and then do that on an individual basis. Uh, th then there's other different examples of, of places that may be warranted, but some of those will come up when we talk about performance supplements, I'm sure. Um, but there are a few off the top of my head that I think at a broad, like what should everyone kind of be taking? They're the only few that would come to mind. The rest is probably more on an individual case by case yeah, basis. No, it's, that's perfect. Um, something I, I should have asked in the question is, so you brought up omega-3s and vitamin D3. Why are these two important? Like why, why do we need to make sure that we have enough of them? So with um, omega-3 is, is simply because just the evidence we have of their protective benefit for many different things. So it starts even uh, before we're born, really, that we know from the habitual diet of um, mothers, even in that preconception period, and maybe even beforehand, the, the level of 
DHA, which is one of those omega threes, um, can have a role on the, um, uh, particularly some of the, the the neural development and cognitive development of the the fetus and the, and then the child, and then through childhood and even in adulthood, we continue to see benefits from uh, various different um, uh, f- from consumption of uh, omega three fatty acids. Uh, a lot of that relates to brain health and cognitive function, like I said. But we also then have reduced risk of cardiovascular disease uh, in general. Um, you see correlations with lower overall uh, systemic inflammation. Um, and, and, and so from that perspective, given that it's only from these kind of couple of sources of food, I fatty fish supplementation is warranted because it, we can't really derive it from other sources of the diet. It's not uniquely available. Um, in the same way, another suggestion may be for something like calcium actually that I didn't mention in that, that is another type of nutrient that is concentrated only a small number of foods, i.e. dairy foods is where we get most of it for most people. And so because of that, because it's not spread evenly across all of our food supply, if you are someone who doesn't consume dairy, either for uh, preference reasons or for ethical reasons, maybe you're on a, a vegan diet or you just don't consume dairy or maybe you have some sort of intolerance, then that person may be more susceptible to getting an inadequate intake of calcium. Because while we can get it from things like green leafy vegetables, it's really difficult to get a a lot of it unless we put a focused attention on that because so much of our source of it is is concentrated in dairy. And and so there is another option where supplementation may be warranted. Um, And then with with vitamin D, we know that plays... uh, we always knew that the role of vitamin D was related to bone health was where it was kind of first really researched in that it plays a critical role in the kind of, uh, um, the, the, the breakdown and then wreath synthesis of new bone, that kind of healthy bone turnover, which, which is what we want. And it's why that most people now, when they see actually calcium supplements aimed at bone health, will see with vitamin D added in, Mm. which typically, didn't used to be there, but now we've understood that vitamin D plays a crucial role in actually absorbing and using that calcium to actually go into the bone. So that's been known for a long time, but over the past 10, 20 years, more and more research on vitamin D has, has, has came out and we're seeing its importance in all different types of tissue. So vitamin D is one of the um, really it kind of acts almost as a hormone, where, but we have a receptor for vitamin D on pretty much every tissue in, in the body. So we're seeing work, for example, in um, sports science that's looking at muscle uh, function and how that is influenced by uh, vitamin D status. And so we know there's a well-known role for vitamin D status in immune health, which is why it's kind of been some focus people have been looking on now in relation to uh COVID-19 and potentially do people with better vitamin D status recover sooner or have better outcomes with their health. And this is an area where has been investigated and there's some papers that are starting to be published now to try and investigate this, but it's because of the known role vitamin D has say in immune function. So because of all these different roles, we know it's very important. Um, and like I said, we rely pretty much on the sun to get that. And so for people who don't have access to it, there would be no other way for them to do do it apart from a supplement, hence why it's important to supplement with that. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. In 
the kind of little bits of reading that I've done about basically trying to find out what supplements might be worthy of of using, the three you mentioned always come up, omega-3, vitamin D, and calcium. Two that also come up are magnesium and zinc. Can you give a little bit of insight into the two of those? Sure. Um, yeah, that, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, I think they typically come up because when you look at some of the um, average population uh, data and surveys, you tend to see that they can be nutrients that are uh, consumed in lower amounts than maybe what be what might be recommended. So there's uh, a number of uh, functions here. I, th- I think with magnesium, um, one of the main sources here is, is again is going to be green uh, leafy vegetables would, would be a, a great source, and hence why it's probably a, a common deficiency in, in many people because it's not something that's unfortunately ubiquitously eaten in as high as amounts as, as we'd we'd want yeah um and so i i think magnesium supplementation is something that uh could be warranted in many cases but i i think generally if enough modifications are made to the diet just to improve diet quality overall it may not require um uh, supplementation and so uh it, again depending on that person's habitual diet it may may be a, a good useful tool um some from an athlete perspective there will be reports of, of people that can find it useful as a kind of muscle relaxant um and therefore a lot of people seem to find benefit when they take it uh, later in the evening uh, so there's kind of like anecdotal report of it helping with sleep and actually sometimes it gets touted as something that's beneficial for sleep although the actual evidence on that is a kind of bit hit and miss so some of that may be relating just to this muscle relaxing property um uh, but there does seem to be an impact on sleep however it does seem to be isolated into those who have a magnesium deficiency and if you correct it with supplementation it can benefit someone but if they're if they don't have a deficiency there's no real impact and i think that's the thing that i would kind of keep in mind for uh supplementation with with anything really that if we're talking about the benefit usually it's from taking someone from a place of deficiency to non-deficiency as opposed to someone has an adequate amount and then just loading more of a specific nutrient is going to have some sort of effect usually it doesn't play out that usually there's a point of diminishing returns with most nutrients um and and really once you're getting an adequate amount there's no inherent advantage to going super high on, on most of these um so 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 that would be that uh zinc can be one again different groups of people can be more likely to maybe require some zinc supplementation i think again looking at vegetarian and vegan athletes it might be something uh that they would consider um and given the sources of zinc in uh from plant sources the bioavailability sometimes isn't as as good uh you tend to see higher recommended intakes for zinc uh, for people who are on a vegetarian and vegan diet. Um, so that might be something that be worth c- considering, depending again, what their overall diet looks like. Um, and in a similar fashion, it's probably actually worth mentioning iron in that uh, for vegetarians and vegans, there can be a higher iron requirement um, because the iron that comes from plant sources is what we call non-heme iron versus in animal sources it's something called heme iron which has a much higher bioavailability and so for that reason um 
people on a vegetarian and vegan diet may require higher total iron intakes. Um, and then we know that athletes may actually benefit from a bit more iron uh, as well because of potential iron losses um, uh, from athletes. And then there's also a skewing towards uh, women will be at higher risk of an iron deficiency as well because they will lose iron uh, through the uh, menstruation period. So um, they are a, a few that there are some kind of subtle differences where supplementation may be uh, possible, but there's also an ability to get some of, of that from, from the diet as well. Yeah, no, that's perfect. I just have a couple more, Danny, and then yeah, I'm sure. going to let you go. Yeah. Um, quickly, can you tell us why magnesium and zinc are important? They're ones that I get common questions on and kind of while I have you and you've explained them a little bit, I, I'd love if you could just give a little bit of info about why those deficiencies are, are things that you don't want to have basically. Yeah, magnesium is an interesting one in that it, it's involved in a lot of the processes that happen uh, w- within the cell and particularly like energy production. It's kind of used alongside uh, a lot of those processes. So I guess it becomes important from uh, an, an athlete uh, perspective for that. Um, and it, but but again, it, it's usually where someone's at a deficiency level there will be maybe some noticeable impacts and so sometimes uh, again anecdotally you hear people started uh, consuming a magnesium supplement and their general energy levels were were better they'll say and so it may be a a case of this being kind of used as a a cofactor alongside some of these these uh, uh, processes Um, and 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 so in a kind of similar fashion uh, with zinc um we know that uh kind of low or i suppose a full on zinc deficiency can be kind of correlated with um overall uh poorer health although it's probably happens in conjunction with other nutrient deficiencies so it's kind of hard to uh point to that as like a, a, a a causative factor, I suppose, in, in some sort of like uh, disorder uh, or disease. Um, but general kind of uh, no, maybe notice kind of like a almost a kind of failure to thrive that's kind of similar with iron deficiency uh, may, might be one of those kind of early kind of uh, signs of that. Um, and, and then therefore kind of some of that is going to be improved then with, with supplementation. Perfect. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Thank you for that. Um, kind of last, last main topic, supplements for performance and training. Like a lot of the people listening to this are, are interested in having a better response, mainly to their kind of strength and power training. Uh, the two that always come up are protein and creatine. I think we touched on protein a little bit earlier in that you definitely can get enough protein in your diet and sort of once you've hit your range of what you need, more isn't necessarily going to improve the response to training or make a huge difference. But creatine is something that's a little bit different in that we know that you can't really get as much from food as you can get from very simple supplementation and that can make a big difference to the response to training. Can you dig into that a little bit for us? 
Sure. So yeah, you're absolutely right that there, whilst there is creatine in say most notably things like red meat, the amount that you'd have to eat to get anywhere close to a supplemental dose would be incredibly, incredibly high. So um, supplementation is going to be the only real way you're going to be absolutely able to uh, saturate those stores of creatine within the muscle. And that's the kind of goal of supplementation that creatine supplementation doesn't have an acute effect in the way that say caffeine does. So you, you take some caffeine and it has an immediate effect in that next 30 to 60 minutes. Creatine is something that uh, builds up in the tissue over time. And when you have a saturation of creatine stores in the muscle, then you get the performance uh, benefit. So if you've never taken creatine and you take one um, drink of creatine now, it's not really going to do anything. It's this this uh, incremental increase and saturation of the muscle. So that can be done in a couple of different ways. It can be done with your standard three to five grams every day, and that may take three, four weeks for someone to saturate in their muscle tissue and then just stay on that dose and it keeps muscle creatine stores full. Um, or the the other protocol that sometimes people will use will, uh, with a loading phase where they'll do something like 20 grams for a week to two um, and then reduce that down to that kind of maintenance dose of three to five grams on an ongoing basis. Um, and again, with the goal of just saturating muscle creatine stores, uh, creatine, what it's doing is essentially in provide, allowing you to do more work uh, is really what it's doing. It, it kind of pulls um, water into uh, the muscle cell. Uh, so sometimes people will ask about, I heard it causes water retention. It doesn't really cause it in the way that they probably think uh, a negative connotation. It draws more water into muscle cells um, and allows you to do more work. So for simplistic reasons, think of it as with those full stores of creatine versus not, you may be able to do uh, an extra couple of reps if you were going to failure in a certain set, let's say. And then you can just imagine how that's different across all different types of activity, but allows better quality work. So when it comes down to its potential for, let's say, allowing someone to gain lean body mass, creatine isn't like just causing you to grow slabs of muscles as if you're injecting an anabolic steroid as people think or that if you start taking creatine it's gonna just cause you to grow muscle everywhere it's literally just allowing you to work harder and do more volume in the gym and therefore get gains from that yeah so the gains and of muscle are from that added work as opposed to some sort of special effect on the muscle yeah and important for for golfers is a double effect there so being able to do more volume is obviously important for mass gain or muscle gain. And the other thing that is important for people to remember is it will also allow you have a higher power output for the work that you are doing. There won't be as much of a decrement. And that's something that I always talk about with one of the big things that golfers are trying to do is, is increase swing speed. So a very short duration, high power activity. And we know when we're training power, one of the things that kind of makes it a little bit awkward is that pretty quickly your power outputs drop down. Whereas if you're supplementing with creatine, you're going to be able to keep the same power output for a little bit of a longer period, and then you're going to get a better response to training because you've done more training at a higher power output as opposed to your power output dropping off, and then you're not getting the same benefit in the training session when that happens, basically. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, that's a really, really valuable point. Yeah. Um, last thing, Danny, uh, safety of creatine concerns. Like, the I get 
I often talk about creatine on Twitter as worthy of potential research and, and use for people. Um, I recommend it to a lot of golfers. Any of the professional guys that I help train are, are taking it. And it's, it's very common. Parents, people emailing me replies, it's going to destroy your kidneys. It's going to make you go crazy. It's going to make you fat. If you stop taking it or you stop working out, can you give... I know it's probably something you could talk at length for. I remember you had a very interesting rebuttal to um, a Neil Francis article in one mm. of the Irish newspapers, which, which which needed to be written. But can you give um, just a little bit of insight into potential risks? Is it okay? Mm. Yeah, so I've heard all of those kind of claims as well, that it does anything from damage to kidneys to liver to basically it's like taking a steroid. And I think a lot of times there is this conflation for with people that creatine is some sort of like steroid. Um, and it's certainly not uh, in any way. Um, and as I've just said, it's, it's, it's not having these steroid-like effects. It's not like someone starts taking it and just slabs of muscle start growing. It's literally something that you can get from your diet that is already in your muscle tissue. Um, and so it's completely natural and you're just having more of these creatine stores and it's just allowing you to do more work. Uh, there is a huge amount of evidence published on creatine now, probably of any sports supplement. Creatine has the most amount of research on it. Number one, both showing its effectiveness, but even more so demonstrating its safety profile that pretty much across the board, whether you take short-term acute studies or longer-term studies, uh, creatine is completely safe for kidney function, uh, for your liver, for all these types of uh, metrics that people are typically worried about. Some things to consider, and maybe where some of the confusion comes up, is that when you start taking creatine, uh, there can be that in the body that can be broken down into another metabolite called creatinine, which sometimes will get flagged up on a uh, blood test because um, for people not supplementing with, with creatine, if you see an elevation in these creatinine levels, that can be an indication that something is up with with the kidney per se. So for uh, in a hospital or a doctor surgery, if someone suddenly saw a spike in this number, that could be a potential red flag to go and investigate. However, in the context of someone taking creatine, that would be an explanatory factor of why it's there. It, it's not causing any harm. That would just be an indicator of this other thing, but it, it's not causing harm. So it's something to uh, make your, your, your doctor uh, aware of to explain maybe why that, that is present. So I think uh, that that's one thing. The only other consideration from a, a safety standpoint is probably more in relation to professional athletes, uh, to making sure where they source their supplement from and getting it from a uh, company with a product line that does independently verified individual batch testing. Uh, so there's different types of this. Here you can get things like informed sport and you get an, an accreditation on that certain product, which just guarantees that there's no contamination with banned substances. So if you're a professional athlete and you're subject to drug testing under WADA or USADA or, any, or anyone else, then making sure that you get your creatine from a place that is, is guaranteed to be free of contamination because uh, that that would be the the danger, not the creatine, and that's that's the same. Just to just to make sure people understand, that's the same for all supplements, not not right. just creatine. That could be from literally any type of supplement you're yes. getting. It could be it could be tainted. Um, 
Danny, that is excellent. Thank you very much. Um, lastly, if people want to find out more from you or from Sigma Nutrition, where can they go? Uh, best place is just sigmanutrition.com, S-I-G-M-A, nutrition.com. Uh, everything is probably up there. Uh, if they are into nutrition podcasts about kind of science, then Sigma Nutrition Radio is on all the apps. And then on social media, probably uh, Instagram is the best place to, to get me. It's just Danny Lennon underscore Sigma. So any of those places is, is cool if they want to find out more yeah, information. Yeah, that, that's brilliant. Sigma Nutrition Radio is one of the podcasts I have listened to most. I've listened to dozens and dozens of episodes. It's it's really, really good. So for the people who are kind of more interested in really digging into the science, I, I strongly recommend checking that out. And Danny and Sigma also have some really good educational resources online, some of your speaking stuff and presentations and things like that. I appreciate that. It's great to hear. Yeah. Danny, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure the people will enjoy this. Thank yeah, you. I hope so. Thanks, Mike.